that we serve a God who is bigger and greater than anything we may be facing or going through. I want to open us up in a word of prayer as we get ready to open God's word. Will you join me? Lord, we love you so much and we are so thankful for the opportunity to gather here today to worship you, to to be at your hands and feet, to just say, God, we're here. We're ready for whatever you have for us. So Lord, I pray over these next few minutes that our hearts will be open to receive all that you have for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Hey, you can be seated as you're sitting down. Say hey to somebody around you. 9 a.m., it's exciting to be with you this morning. You guys are the early crowd, right? I mean, truthfully, it's daylight savings time, and unless you still, how many of you still use an alarm clock, right? Okay, like 10 of you, so not, not a ton of people. Your phones, praise God for technology, and truthfully, you don't have to change your car, you just wait six months, and it'll fix itself, amen. So I'm excited that you're here this morning. My name is Pastor Nick Newman, and, and it's a privilege to be here today. If you are a first-time guest with us, I want to say welcome on behalf of myself, my wife, and the rest of the team here at Propel. We are honored that you chose to spend today with us, because we realize, man, you could have been anywhere, and we're not going to point you out or make you feel weird. The only thing that we ask is at some point today, you take a second and you fill out this Connect card. It's our simple, easy way of connecting with you. We'd love to say, hey, I'll send you a thank you note to thank you for joining us today. We are in week two of a series called More, and this is one of those series that I'm so fired up and excited about because we're talking about how God can do more in our lives than we ever thought, could ask, or imagine. And so I shared this word with you at the begin, the end of 2018, believing that 2019 was a year of more. And then last week, we gave you a big announcement that, that in, we're through a renovation process, Propel Church is going to be moving into the old Mount Pleasant Middle school and we're so excited for that project and everything that's coming up with that. But but I want to go into, I want to dive into this series of more in week two and really talk about God's desire for our family, not just Propel Church, but his family as a whole, because I believe that God desires more family. I believe that God wants his family to grow. And who is in the family of God? What scripture teaches us is that you are in the family of God if you've said yes to Jesus. God wants people to say yes to Jesus, to allow him to pay for their sins. God's desire is for his family to grow. Because what God is doing is he's drawing all people to himself. But what do you think of when you hear the word family? Now, for some of you, you love your family. You had an incredible family growing up. They were absolutely terrific. You, you never fought. If, if you had a family and you never fought, you probably didn't have family, right? Come on, because some of y'all know y'all got the other side of family where all you did was fight. And so when you hear the word family, you get a little bit uptight. It kind of takes the air out of your chest. You're going, oh, family. Oh, I don't know if I like my family. You don't have to look at them. Like, come on, keep your eyes up here. So... For some of us, we get so caught up in this word family. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word family, but there's a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10 based on a question that a man asked. It says this in Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen for you. Luke chapter 10 verse 25 says, Just then a religious scholar stood up with the question to test Jesus. He wanted to trap Jesus. He wanted to, to figure out how to, how to enslave Jesus to get him into a little bit of trouble. So he asked this question, teacher, 
What do I got to do to get eternal life? And so Jesus is so funny, he just answers a question with a question. Come on, how many of y'all know you get so annoyed when people do that? (laughs) Jesus says, well, what's written in God's law? And how do you interpret it? In other words, what he's saying is, man, we've already been through this. Right? You go back to the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, you'll see the, the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see, I preached this message already. You're a religious scholar. You're a religious teacher. Whip out your notebook because you should have been taking notes. If you take notes, you look back, you flip to page 37, right there in your notebook, you're going to see what I already told you. What do you think you're supposed to do to get eternal life? And the guy says, okay, well, great. I'll open my notebook, and he opens to page 37, and he says this. He said, Oh, that you should love the Lord your God with all your passion, your prayer, your muscle, and your intelligence, your your heart, soul, mind, and and strength, and that you should love your neighbor as you do yourself. And Jesus replied, good answer. Like, that's it. If you do those two things, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, or as the message translation says, that you would love him with your passion, your prayer, your muscle, your intelligence, and you love your neighbor as yourself, that's all you got to do. And for some of us, we realize in this moment, that's a little harder than I thought. Right? Because I don't know about you. Maybe you're nothing like me. But for me, there's people in my life that I don't want to love like I love myself. I kind of like me. And there's a lot of people I don't like. (laughs) I know you're different. I know you don't have problems. You don't have any issues. You don't have anything like that going on. But when when this man's talking to Jesus, he's saying, hey, all you got to do is love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you're good. So looking for a loophole, this man said, "So, so Jesus, how would you define neighbor? In other words, I need you to bring some clarity to how you would define the term neighbor. Because I know I'm supposed to love people. I love my neighbor as I love myself. Can you just tell me who my neighbor is so that I can figure out who I don't have to love? Come on, some of y'all, you wouldn't do this, right? But, But you would. I think sometimes we... Look for loopholes. So, so I was really curious, and, and, and I said, okay, when I'm reading this passage of Scripture and I look at the word neighbor, how would you define the word neighbor? So I went back and looked at the, the Greek translation of the word neighbor, which means this, children of my people. In other words, as Jesus is telling him, as this man is, is saying, hey, you should love the Lord your God and, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's not just talking about neighbor as we would know the term neighbor. Because the way we understand the word neighbor is based on proximity. So I would consider somebody my neighbor if they live next door to me. That's my neighbor. Which means if you're not in close proximity, I don't have to love you. Isn't that great? You may define neighbor a little bit differently. Your, your neighbor could be the person you sit next to at work because, again, it's all based on proximity. Or it could be relational neighbor to, to indicate the fact that they are somebody who is close to you. But as long as they're not close to you, then you're good. What Jesus is saying here is that you have to love family as yourself. But how in the world do you define family? How do you figure out who is your family and who is not your family? Because what this man wants to figure out is, can you just tell me who I don't have to love? I ain't got time to love everybody. 
And I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and do this whole love your, the Lord your God thing, but this whole love my neighbor, that's a lot, yo. Help a brother out. So then Jesus opens up and he tells this parable. Luke chapter 10, verse 30 through 32 says this. So then Jesus answered by telling a story. And so there was once a man from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, they beat him up, and they went, leaving him half dead. So as Jesus starts to tell this story, I think it's important for you and I to know that there's a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, meaning he's a Jewish man. Other translations will tell us that. So there's about, there's this road, it's about 10 miles long. This is Jerusalem, this is Jericho. There's a guy, he's traveling down it. Jewish man. You got to keep track with the story because if you don't, you'll miss out on the importance of it. See, in this culture, in this time period, if you were a Jewish man, you were one of God's chosen people, meaning if anything bad happened to you, you probably did it something to deserve it. Like in this culture, in this time period, if something went wrong, it's because you royally messed up. So there's a Jewish man, and they're listening to this story, and they're saying, okay, there's a Jewish man, and he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And then all of a sudden, there's robbers, and they beat him up. Oh, no, I know they got beat up. So he's traveling, and he's going down, and, and this man gets beaten up, and then everything's taken from him. Everything's taken? Yeah, I know, everything's taken. So Jesus continues to tell this story to say, this guy is beat up. He's laying on the side of the road. But luckily, there was a priest. Oh, great. This is good news. Because the priest was the guy who was over the temple. He was the, the pastor of the people. Finally, there's a guy beaten down, broken. He's a Jewish man. He's one of God's chosen and holy people. The priest shows up, and the priest is going to save the day. This is what it says. Luckily, a priest was on his way. And what I love about Scripture is it tells us that he was on the same road. So it wasn't like the priest was on a different road and it wasn't an adjoining road. The priest was on the same road and the priest just happened to be on the same side of the road that the beaten man was on. So the priest is walking down the road. The broken down man is on the right side of the road and the priest looks at him and he's walking. And Scripture tells us that as he saw the man, he went, oh, I ain't got time for that. And he dipped to the left side of the road, and he started walking away. When he saw the man, he angled across to the other side. Time out. This was the pastor. If, if I was going to make anybody a hero in the story, as Jesus is telling this story about who is family, I would probably make the pastor the hero. I may be a little biased in that, but that's probably what I would do. Because these people looked up to the pastor. They looked up to the priest. This was the guy for the job. If anybody was going to save the day, it was going to be the priest. But the priest looks at the guy who is broken down, and he doesn't have a heart filled with compassion. He doesn't feel sorry for the guy at all. He looks at him and goes, yeah, I ain't got time for that. Angles to the left side. Then a Levite shows up. Thankfully, the Levites are here. Now, the Levites were the people who were in charge of handling basically the day-to-day -day operations of the temple. These were the guys who, who did the, the pastoral care. They did the phone calls. They helped people out. These were going to be the people. Where you, you see the people in the I love my church or I'm here to serve church. These would be the dream team. This would be the volunteers. These would be the people that show up week in and week out to serve the local church. Thank God the Levites are here. But then it said that the Levite showed up and he 
also avoided the injured man. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one, if, if the Levite served under the priest, he would model what he was already shown. But the second thing I think is that I think it's really easy for you and I to get so caught up in doing church that we forget to be the church. So church, hear me today. Don't get so caught up in doing church, like showing up week in and week out, forgetting that your call, your mission is to reach people far from God. What the, what the priest saw as an inconvenience was actually divine orchestration for him to step into the plans and the purpose of God. He saw a man who was broken down, and he had gotten so good at preaching. He had gotten so good at teaching people about God's goodness, maybe God's mercy, God's law, and everything that God was for, that he forgot that God cares so much about lost people. God cares about people that are broken. Lost people, broken people are not an inconvenience. They're not an interruption. They are a part of our purpose here on this earth. We can't get so caught up in doing church that we forget to be the church. We can't get so caught up in just showing up on Sunday and serving. And maybe you're here and and you don't serve and you just show up and you attend. If what happens on Sunday doesn't transform your Monday, then Sunday didn't matter. So my my heart for you, as I read this text, I I look at the, the pastor who knew all the right stuff and I look at the Levites and the people who he was empowering and I go, man, I can't get to a place where I get so focused on just showing up on Sunday and pulling off church that I forget my mission and my call is to see people far from God transformed through the power of his spirit. For your life and my life, if the only time you talk about Jesus is when you're at church and not your workplace, there's a disconnect in your life. Because the same God who you meet here on Sunday morning wants to meet you in the middle of your car, the middle of your workplace, the middle of your living room. Don't get so caught up. Don't get so focused on everything else. There are other passages of text and you read it and you dig in and you find out that, that maybe the priest was too afraid to get his hands dirty. He would be considered unclean. Can I just tell you, God came so that he could become unclean so that in him we might become purified. So God wasn't afraid to get messy. He wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. And you and I are the ministers of reconciliation to the world. We are the people that God chooses to use on his behalf to glorify and honor him. We can't get so caught up in doing church, we forget to be the church. James teaches us that we would be doers of the word, not simply hearers. Don't go, for the, don't go through the motions don't feel like you have to wait till you get your spiritual black belt. Like there ain't you, you ain't got you ain't got to wait till you know how to pray for fifty minutes straight to start telling people how good God is. I share this story from time to time, and I know your story is not my story, and and I don't I don't want it to be. I think you have a unique story that God's done some things in your life intentionally, on purpose, for a purpose, with a purpose, but. But the night I got saved, the night I gave my life to Jesus, I led my first Bible study. I was teaching stuff I didn't even know about. Like, like so, so, so this was just radical transformation, and, and God saved me. He redeemed me, and I opened up his word, and I started teaching on the cost of discipleship. I've been following Jesus for like 47 seconds, you know? <laughs> but when the Spirit of God comes onto your life, he's, only, he's the only thing you need to qualify you for what you're called to do. 
Be led by the Spirit. That's what Galatians teaches us. So we continue reading in the story. Jesus is just told, this, this would have been a shocking revelation to the people. They would have been so confused to wonder, why in the world did Jesus just make the bad guy of the story, the priest and the Levite? And it gets worse. Jesus continues on in verse 33 to say, and then there was a Samaritan traveling down the road that came to him. And as Jesus would have said, there's a Samaritan, the air would have left the room. Oh, the Samaritan showed up. He's probably going to be the guy that, that comes and he sees the Jewish man that's beaten down and kicked down and he's going to kick him a little bit more. He's not going to avoid him. He's going to make sure to taunt him because for the longest time, Jewish people have taunted Samaritans thinking and saying that they are better than them, that they know better, that, that they're different, that they're elitist. And, and now is the opportunity for the Samaritan to take advantage of the situation. But Jesus doesn't say that at all. Jesus says when the Samaritan came down the same road, he came down the same road as the priest, came down the same road as the Levite. When the Samaritan came down, he saw the man's condition and had compassion for him. His, his heart went out to him. Like, like the true mark of love is that you're willing to give. That's why scripture teaches us that for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Giving is a natural response to love. So he saw the man's condition. His heart went out to him. He gave him first aid. He disinfected him. He bandaged his wounds. And then he lifted him up onto his donkey. And he led them to an inn to be comfortable. And he, it says that in the morning, he took out two silver coins and he gave it to the innkeeper saying, take good care of him. If it costs anything more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. I want to show you four things that I think family does for each other. The first thing I want to show you is that family can be anyone. Family can be anyone. The fact that Jesus picked the Samaritan to be the hero of the story is a really big deal. Because in this time period, Jews and Samaritans were divided. They didn't have anything to do with each other. They didn't want to have anything to do with each other. They were people who didn't talk, didn't associate with each other because they were considered to be bitter enemies. And what Jesus is doing by showing the Samaritan as the hero of the story, he's saying anyone can be family. Like you may not think about it this way because of the current broken down condition that somebody has in their life, but the drug dealer can be family. The prostitute can be family. The Republican and the Democrat can be family. Even the Duke and the Carolina fan can be family. Come on, can I get a good amen? Everything that you and I think divides us can be overcome through the power of Jesus if you would humble yourself and shut up. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, oh, but for real though, like we get so caught up sometimes thinking that our opinion really matters that much. What scripture teaches us is that Jesus came so that what was broken, what was torn down, what was divided could be brought back together. So every time you choose to argue with somebody on Facebook over things that don't make an eternal difference, you're choosing to build walls that Christ already died to tear down. So, so we know that family can be anybody. Despite our differences, I'm called to love other people. Jesus shows the Samaritan as family on purpose because this thing that God is doing, he's, the family that he's building is for all people. No matter what your current condition is, no matter what your current political view is, God desires a relationship with you and to bring you into the family.
The second thing it shows me is that family gets messy. As this man was giving him aid and, and he walks down, one of the things that I, we don't see him do at all is go, I wonder how he got here. I bet the, the decisions or the mistakes that he made, I bet all of these, whatever word I'm trying to use there, all of these collective things that he's done in his life brought him to the place where he was broken. And he doesn't do that at all. Scripture says that he had compassion for him. His heart went out to him and then immediately he stepped in to give him aid. He stepped in to help him. And as he's bandaging him, as he's lifting him up onto his shoulders, he would become covered in whatever filth the man was covered in. Because I think family is willing to get messy. He wasn't concerned about how did this guy get here? I, I really bet it's his fault. He said, no, I'll carry it. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says, carry each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. In other words, sometimes you and I look at people and we go, they did that to themselves. They deserve that. Family doesn't kick you while you're down. Family helps you pick up the mess and the broken pieces of your life. So as we as a, as a church, as a body of people, we know that family can be anybody. We believe that family is willing to get messy. I believe that we have to be willing to carry the weight of those who are broken. This is not a fix yourself first, then come into the family kind of church. This is a we know that Christ died for us while we were still sinners kind of church. We know that you got issues. We know, we know that you're broken. We know that you have mistakes and faults and flaws and failures, but Christ died for every single one of those. And as a family, we're willing to get messy. The third thing it shows me is that family covers the cost. The man pays for the end. There's probably some other things he wanted to do that day. He didn't plan on being interrupted by a, Samaritan, by a Jewish man who was beaten down. I think sometimes, though, God loves to interrupt your schedule so that you can be a part of his plan. So the man is traveling down the road. He lifts him up on his donkey, and we don't know where the guy was actually going other than he was traveling at some point on this road. But, but he's heading back, and he takes him to an inn so that the guy can get well, and he pays the bill. He says, hey, hey here's, his, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover the cost of it. I think family covers the cost for things. Because there's a, a cost associated with more people coming into the family of God. I think it costs each and every single one of us time, talent, and treasure. There's a cost that's associated with creating a space where more family can come in. That's why we, we've talked to you about what we're doing at the new property. And, and, and I think that as we see this new facility, we see this new location, it gives us the opportunity for more family. And what family does is family covers the cost of things. Uh, my father-in-law my father-in-law and I have an interesting relationship when it comes to covering the cost. Because we go out to dinner with him every now and then, and I always try and pay, and I never get to pay. Like, it's so incredibly frustrating. So, like, we'll sit down and we'll eat dinner, and I think, okay, we're about three-fourths of the way through. Here's what you do. You sneak to the bathroom, you pay the bill, and you're good to go. I did it once. He hugged me on the way out, and I found 20 bucks in my pocket when I got <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? But you know what it shows me? That family covers the cost. That family is willing to do 
whatever it took. They, they, they were willing to cover the cost of things for Tori and I. When, when we were so broke, we, we lived like deep below the poverty line. They were willing to cover the cost because family is willing to cover the cost. And the last thing about family is that, that family goes the extra mile. He could have just paid for the first few nights and, and said, all right, once he wakes up, he'll be able to take care of himself. But he didn't. He said, hey, here's the money for the first couple of nights, and if it costs anything else, put it on my bill. I'll pay it on my way back. I believe that family goes the extra mile. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, and I'll read it to you in a second. But in this time period, um, they were under Roman rule. And the Roman rule was that if a soldier came into your town, what you would have to do is you would have to carry their bags for one mile. That was the law. So these people would go from their front door and they would walk one mile and they would mark the line and they would say, okay, here's the line. I carry the soldier's stuff one mile and I drop the bag. I'm done with it. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. In other words, the first mile is law, but the second mile is love. Like if you really want to show people my love, my goodness, my grace, my mercy, don't just do the bare minimum requirement. Go the extra mile. If you really want people to know how great I am, the fact that the God you serve is different from everybody else, don't be self-serving enough to have the line marked out to say, hey, I'm just going to drop it where I'm supposed to or I'm going to only go the first mile. He says, if somebody compels you to go one mile, walk with them too. Do whatever it takes to go above and beyond. Don't settle for the bare minimum. What I love that, that it shows us is that family goes the extra mile. May we never be a church that settles for the bare minimum. Because I believe that blessing rests on the other side of mile two. Blessing happens when you and I don't just settle for what's okay in the eyes of the world. But we go as far as God leads us. He continues on in verse 36 to say, so what do you think? And Jesus just wrecked their world, right? Like he has, he has wrecked every social norm. He's, he's, he's flipped over every metaphorical theological table that they've built up inside of their head. Like he has done everything in this moment to say that the priest is in the wrong, the Levite's in the wrong, the Samaritan is the hero. And then he goes, hey, what do you think about that? <laughs> Which of these three became a neighbor to the man who was attacked. In other words, none of them were family. But one of them became family. Who do you think became family to the one who treated, who was attacked by the robbers? The one who treated the man kindly, the religious scholar replied. And Jesus responded, Go and do likewise. This parable ends with you and I seeing that there was one man who became family. Obviously, it was the Samaritan because of his kindness. Which brings me to my last point. That we are not family by blood. We are family by love. We are not family by blood. We are family by love.
See, you and I are not biologically related at all. Uh, there's probably one person here that is my sister somewhere. <laughs> but let me just tell you that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, because I've experienced Christ's love, I have the ability to love you. And we might not be family by blood, but we are family by love. I love what Scripture teaches us about repentance, is that it's the kindness of God that brings people to repentance. Which one became family? The one who extended love to other people. And so while I think that's important for you and I to know this morning, to think about as we wrap up our time together, is because for some of us, when we look at the fact that, that family can be anyone, we've discredited some people from ever experiencing the love of God. We think that because of their condition or because of the mistakes they've made, there's no way God could ever love them. Can I just tell you, Jesus died for the people you don't like. Jesus died for the people you don't agree with. For, for some of you, I'm, I'm gonna hit something really quick. For some of you, you need to hear today that Jesus died for people that are a different, a different ethnicity than you. That family can be anybody. Because it's the love of God that drew you and I out of darkness and called us into light. Family can not only be anybody, but family is willing to get messy. And for some of us, we've gotten so good at doing church, we forget that we exist to help lost people come to meet Christ. Family covers the cost. I believe for some of us, we've become so greedy and, and self-centered when it comes to finances, our giftings, our abilities, that we hoard everything that God has tried to bless us with. And family goes the extra mile. For some of us, we've just settled for bare minimum. I think the whole purpose of this parable was for you and I to stop trying to figure out who we don't have to love and start treating everybody as if they could be family. To start loving people unconditionally, knowing that the kindness of God will lead people to repentance. And for some of us, our life doesn't look like we would become family. Today, that changes for you. I want to walk you through a prayer in just a second. Will you do me a favor? Will you stand to your feet for a moment? I'm going to do two prayers, and I have one more passage of Scripture for you in a second. But I want to pray over you because I believe that for some of you, Maybe your heart got hard towards lost people. Maybe you forgot what it was actually like to not know God, to remember what it was like to be separated from him, to be disconnected from him. And my prayer is that God would fill your heart with love and compassion for people who are broken, for people who are hurting, because can I tell you, the world is full of people who are broken and hurting. So Father, as we come to you right now, we just lift up your name, we declare that you are greater than anything we may be facing. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would be open to become family for those who are broken and hurting. Father, for every single person who's in here that desires to become family, that wants to grow 
in the area of helping other people meet you, I pray their heart would be stretched right now. That their love and compassion would become overflowing, that they might know your goodness, your love, and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe that there are some of you in here that you didn't really see yourself in the story like the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan. You saw yourself in the story as the guy who was beaten down and who was broken. And you may be thinking, man, Pastor, I can't even help, I can't even think about helping somebody else because I'm beat down right now. I'm broken. I, I ain't got my life together. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I just feel like I'm stuck on the side of the road and I'm wondering, when is somebody going to come help me? Can I tell you what God's desire for you is? Is to place you in family. Psalm 68, verse 5 through 6. Says he is a father to the fatherless. He is a defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and he gives them joy. Other translations of that scripture say he places the downcast, he places the broken in families. Because I believe that the healing you need is actually found inside of the family of God. But it starts today by you saying yes to Jesus. So with every head bowed, every eye closed for a moment, if you'd say, hey, I feel a lot like the man who is broken and beaten down. And today, I want to surrender control of my life to Jesus. I want to become family. If that's you, would you just lift your hand for a brief moment? I see those. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Church, here's what we're going to do. Nobody prays alone. We're all going to pray together. Will you say this out loud with me? Dear Jesus, today I give you my life. I place my hope and trust in you. Thank you for dying in my place so that I could have new life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, won't you celebrate church with those who made decisions? Amen. Amen. We're going to continue in worship for a moment and sing a song called Hope Has a Name. And as we sing this out, as we declare it, one of the things that I love is it talks about how hope is found in the name of Jesus. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through today, I believe that as you proclaim the goodness of Jesus, your problems begin to get smaller and your Savior becomes larger. Let's worship.